The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. I am joined with the creative team behind the new movie Blood, which is uh, premiering at the 2022 Sundance Film Festival. I've got Bradley Ress Gray, director and cinematographer Eric Lynn uh, with me. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I'm a big fan of the podcast, I should say. I listen to it constantly. So excited to be on. Uh, that's wonderful to hear. You, you made me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. I'm, I'm glad. I'm going to dive right into Blood. I'm going to do the really quick synopsis. Uh, a woman in mourning travels to Japan in some ways to mourn and to reboot her life. Does that sort of, sort of uh, the, the, the really short version? Uh, no one wants to really hear me, though, describe this movie. Gentlemen, please tell me how you would describe blood. You're right. She's mourning, but that makes it sound... We always have had to like play with this word in a weird way, like mourning, because I think you're, in a way, when somebody dies, you're, you never really get over it. You know, you never will. That's part of the process of death. But I think about for in our head, about two two years has passed since her husband's passed away. So she's she's in Japan to do a job and she's working, but she's carrying the grief and the weight uh, with her of, of a uh, her husband who's passed away. Yeah. Yeah. So the movie has a lot of a lot of visuals. It's a very visual movie and it's got a very methodical pace where one scene sort of begets the next and it's filled with with flashbacks. I got to ask from the early get go of your envisioning of how this is all going to work. What's the script look like? What's the script look like? You've got so many different sort of uh, moving back and forths and so many visuals. How does the envisioning of this whole movie come together? For us, the uh, the film's just sort of like we wanted to, to feel as if you're really there in the moment with her at all times. A little bit of what you're getting at, it's like in the script, there's these dreams. And in the film, you see her dreams. that She's sort of dreaming of her husband. And, and she doesn't really remember this. And so the audience is sort of aware of things that are going on in her head that, that isn't really super present in her sense, but it's deep down inside her. And in the script, we wrote out those dreams and we had an idea about what we wanted them to be like. And, and in the script itself, it starts to twist quite a lot. And there's a moment where you start to wonder whether or not the Japan part of the film is a dream and that she's actually in another space with her husband. And, uh, and then we filmed that movie. And in the editing, it, it, there's a certain stream of consciousness that feels that you're going through when you're watching the film. And that it wasn't necessary to, to twist it too many times because it's already just a little bit gently there. And her emotional journey is so clear, fortunately, in the film, that that, that should be the centerpiece of the, of the film. And it's not really about losing your place narratively as an audience member. You know, it's, it's about sort of being present with her at all, at all times, even if you are sometimes present with her in a, in a dream that she is maybe not going to remember when she wakes up. And we, we approached the idea of these dreams as trying to feel as uh, seamlessly matching with the narrative as much as possible. You know, it's not like we wanted to film it in black and white with grainy 16 millimeter footage so it felt different. We wanted it to feel the same so that you would maybe not realize when one thing started and another thing ended. Yeah, I would, I would also jump in and say the style of working, like Brad loves to throw actors into situations and, and find something real that happens within it, right? 
So a lot of what we captured in the film was not, you know, on the script, like the script was an outline and then we improvised off of it, depending on whatever opportunities we found, locations, you know, actor, actors or situations even. So a lot of the, the moving between in and out of dreams and memories wasn't, you know, always as it was scripted as it was, right? Like we found opportunities as we were shooting. We're like, oh, you know, if she's here or she goes through that doorway, maybe there's a chance to do something on the other side. Luckily, you were able to shoot the Iceland sections almost a year later <laughs> with Guy Godfrey, who took over that because I wasn't available, um, which I was very jealous of and got some amazing stuff in Iceland. I have to assume that the volcano then was Iceland. <laughs> the volcano uh, takes place in Iceland. Yes, it does. <laughs> okay. I'm not going to say anything else. I don't want to ruin it for anyone. I'm yeah. just saying volcano. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and it's, it's stunning. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Super jealous. So it wasn't as tightly, like we had ideas, you know, you talked about like last year in Mary and Bad and how certain like dreamlike transitions happened, but, but it wasn't like tightly storyboarded or tightly, you know, yeah, it was all about like opportunities and instincts, I think. I'm curious, was like Meshes of the Afternoon sort of like a, a visual touchstone for you in some way or what uh, specifically from Maya Darren were you trying to evoke? I really like that we just have a tripod and a camera, you know, and, and that you can do so much magic with that, you know, you can pan and tilt and like... It's like, well, you, there's a lot of options and, and she's, you know, that's what it is. It's like, you know, suddenly you run something backwards or some, suddenly something's upside down and it's just magical. And that's what's so magical about, about her films is that because it's, there's the, there's the joy of knowing the construction when you see it in the back of your head, you can figure out what she's doing. But in the moment, when you see it the first time, you're just right there exactly where she wants you to be. And, um. I think it's, it's, that was the inspiration for us. And then coincidentally, the, I think the most Maya Darren shot in the movie is not something we talked about, but it's that shot, you know, when she's like looks out uh, through the window at the beginning of the film with the, that's like straight out of that shot from Messes in the Afternoon. But we shot, we had to shoot that in like 15 minutes because the light was going and we were like, where did we put the camera? Where did we put the camera? You know, and it's always like that, right? Yeah. You know? And we did, we did multiple versions too. I think we started without the, the glass in it even. Yeah. And then we, we threw the glass in. Like, what happens so, if we shut uh, suggestion. Like, okay. Yeah, yeah. Reflection. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I got to give you props too, though. There's not a ton of exposition in this movie. And it's done very, very cleverly too uh, through Toshi basically giving the, the sort of uh, the rundown right at the beginning. You get to find out uh, who your protagonist is, what's going on, what's the main things in her life. And it happens all in about 30 seconds and it feels incredibly natural. So I got to I got to say that was like, I can't remember ever seeing that in a movie before. But I, uh, you know, kudos for scripting in a way for me to engage immediately with what's happening here in the movie in the first three minutes. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that. I was like, all right, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go in this first scene. I got all, all the, the basic uh, fundamental information. Was this a conscious choice? Yeah, thank you for noticing that. Yeah, that was it, like the whole script is that scene. If you could just get that one scene, then we're like, ah, now we could film whatever we want because like I want you to feel present with the character at all times. I don't want them to know something that you don't know. We want the audience to be with Chloe in present tense from the get-go of the movie. I I just always really liked this idea. I'm trying to think of other examples, but like when, when the film starts and then you get all of that information just in the very first scene. And, it, and it, of course, it always works if somebody's explaining the situation to somebody else and it worked with the grandmother. And we were just so fortunate to find this woman to play that part because she's so engaging with that scene. And it's like those scenes for for us, I'm so stressed when they have to say something. And, and that seems like really really crucial. It was just like the hugest relief once once we got it and then everything can 
can take place after that. Eric, I want to bring you into this conversation. My appreciation of your work. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Hearts Beat Loud. And that was the first time I ever really saw something that you'd done. And also Sound of Silence on the podcast. I, I think I said, I think I said back in 2019 that it was my pick for best cinematography at, at the Sundance Festival. And uh, and I, I mean that sincerely. No disrespect to the, the people who actually, uh, you know, who won those awards. But you were my pick. And I thought that that was a fantastic movie. So I was very excited actually to, to sit down to blood, which feels like a real departure from other movies. It feels very minimalistic. It feels very naturally lit. I know that these were intentions, even if it, it, it may not have been, but can you talk about the framing? Because Brad has already referenced that here with sort of uh, static frames, but also sizing of characters in the frame. I, I noticed real sorts of distance at certain scenes. And then other times we're in very close and it feels like these are all very conscious choices. But can you talk a little bit about the, you know, the framing in blood and how maybe then the positioning of people inside the frame. Yeah, uh, thank you for the kind words. I really appreciate that. It's funny because Blood is almost, uh, for me, like a homecoming because me and Brad made Exploding Girl 2009, I think, and that was like my second feature. And, you know, Blood, I felt like as a continuation of that style we found there, which is like kind of a, a very formal, calm approach to capturing the unexpected. You know, I think in Exploding Girl, Brad, I used the term eavesdropping, which has been like kind of a guiding word for me when we think of when I think about how we shoot our shoot our films. We want to feel like we're peering into this moment, right? We're not imposing ourselves on the moment, but we're, we happen to be there. And, you know, Ho Shao Shen was a big inspiration for us because, you know, if you'll have these incredible, gorgeous scenes, uh, I think it's like the assassin is like, a, you know, it's like a shot. I think it's like the the duke or the king and with his family. And he, if, if they had backed up like five feet, they would have had a shot that they wouldn't have to pan or adjust. But the fact that they were just off enough, they hadn't quite planned it right. They had to like make choices. And that little like instinctual moving of the frame, you know, helps you be in that moment. You're like, you're also kind of catching up to the actors, right? We're not, we didn't know necessarily what happened. And a lot of scenes we didn't. The the dance class in the park, you know, we had all these kids. We kind of knew which direction we wanted to face because I wanted to shoot against, against the sun. We, did, we didn't know where the actors would, you know, where the, the kids would go. We didn't know where Chieko would be. What I loved also about our style of filmmaking is like, yes, we would be on very long lenses, you know, anywhere, anywhere between like an 85 and a 300 if we were outside. If we were inside, it was almost like documentary, I don't know, wildlife approach to very gentle, you know, quiet moments. And, you know, we, we would certainly run scenes again and again, but it was never, it was never like, we need this frame, right? We need this woman here to do this, this and that. Um, but we knew like they would be in certain places. If you were to put a percentage figure on it, gentlemen, uh, how much of this movie would you say is improvised from the the basic formula that you kind of set up and put together and, and the look? It sounds to me like I felt like there was a lot of precision in this, but at the same time, it sounds like you were very open to exploring what was happening on the on the day versus what would have been in a storyboard or what would have been in a shot list. You know, what do you think percentage wise? <laughs> um, There's a lot of footage. I'd say 30, 30% is imprecise. Would you, Eric, something like that? Yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of it was uh, taking the kernel of the script, but discovering it also within, you know, wherever we were. Like if we saw opportunities, yeah, we would take advantage of it. Yeah, some of the scenes were like they are practicing the dance practice, right? So technically, right. and they probably had lines of dialogue, you know, but that was like, that was just to get the tone for that particular dance practice. Or like when they do the pancake scene and they're making pancakes, you know, he does have the line, is this like Peter's pancakes? So he's referencing that he's had pancakes with Peter and, and they're making okinamiyaki, which is like a pancake, right? In Japan. 
And so it references that. And then in, in Iceland, you know, we filmed him making pancakes. That's in the script. But like, for example, the scene where they make pancakes, you know, once Futaba's in the scene, it's going to be great. And, and she's going to do whatever she, we have to be ready to move around for if we want to get her in the frame. And then it, you just know that it's going to be an interesting scene. He just has the one line about uh, like Peter's pancakes. And then, for example, the cat starts eating the, the food. This is the one time Eric moved without us sort of like we're normally like talking in a little bit about what we're going to do. Eric starts floating off. I'm like, where the hell is he going? And then there's the cat, because Eric saw this cat eating the, the pancake batter. Then in the film, for example, you see this scene, which I really like, where they're making the, the, this okinamiyaki, they, and then they eat the okinamiyaki afterwards. And Fuchan says this line, like, the three of us made this together, you know? And um, that's one take. Like, that whole, all, all the, making the pancakes and eating it's all one, one take. If there was something that's scripted, normally there's like, like when he asked her on a date, I think we did 15 of those, you know, and the take that's in the movie is like take number 10. So it's almost like when there's an action, we could film, we would do 30, 40 minute takes. And um, when it was something scripted, we would break it down into like the smaller chunks and focus on what we would needed to get. And something like, for example, the he asked her on a date, we knew in advance where the sun would be setting, what time of day we wanted to be there. So we set up the schedule so that we would have 30, 40 minutes to set up, get everybody ready, and then we would shoot it right at the magic time. That, that's really interesting. I think that's really interesting for our, our listeners too, because every, every project is different. And uh, some people, their whole basis is around the idea of being receptive to what's going on. And others are all, all about the, uh, the printed word on the page. So it sounds like you guys had a really good blend. Hey, I want to talk about the complications of international production, because clearly you weren't faking Japan in the U.S. nor Iceland. So there's there's a lot of challenges that are involved in any sort of any sort of international production. And of course, when your cast is not necessarily speaking your native language, Nihongo ga wa karemasu ka? I'm, I'm, cu I'm curious, do you guys, either of you speak any Japanese whatsoever? Or are we relying on on translators? Um, I do not speak Japanese. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I speak... <laughs> A, a few words. I, I speak a few more words than Eric, who speaks none. <laughs> Something like that. Okay. You know. Uh, I, I've been studying uh, Japanese for probably the last 10 years, okay. and I've given myself a 40-year goal to become proficient. I've given up on fluency, so I can I can tell you that it is, it is uh, probably one of the most complicated languages out there if you're a native English speaker. So that's... Uh, anyway, can you talk a little bit about uh, shooting in Japan and what it's like uh, working with a with a cast that is performing lines of dialogue that, that you're not necessarily getting the uh, immediate um, emotional resonance in your brain because of what they're saying? Um, well, I think you can get the emotional resonance, but you don't get the words, you know. The, the first film I filmed was in Iceland and... Um, I, I don't speak Icelandic either. And, and the whole film was in Icelandic. So we would shoot a scene and then I'd be like, what'd you say? You know, and then, or I would say, say this. Or I'd tell one actor to say something and the other actor, I wouldn't give him lines. And then, and then they would tell me, and then you'd translate it later. So I, well, we had, I had Michi, Michi was my assistant and she was fluent in Japanese. So she would sit next to me and Eric whenever we filmed and um, she would lean in and say, Tell, tell me a general idea of if, if something was happening. There's something like, for example, there's a scene with a grandmother at the end, that happens at the end of the film when they sit together, her and Chloe. And in the script, I wanted a scene where Chloe and the grandmother were sitting together because I think that just there's a natural presence because they don't speak the same language either. And my wife's grandmother 
was Korean and I used to sit with her and she would talk and, and slap me around and, and it was just this wonderful bond, but we never, I never could speak with her and I liked that relationship. So it, all we needed to do was just to get the, the grandmother to sit there and not look at the camera, which occasionally would happen. And we just started filming, you know, and this wonderful, wonderful thing happened between them because Carla's so open emotionally and, and, and there was a really honest bond between the two of them. And, you know, the grandmother was saying all these things and Eric and I, you know, are watching through the camera and you could tell that it's very, very personal, you know, and then the grandmother starts singing. And it, of course, if you don't understand what she's saying, you don't even expect that she's going to start singing. And then we're like, oh my gosh. And you know, you're like crying as we're filming the scene, but I have no idea what they're saying. And it wasn't actually, I just like, I think a month ago, we just translated that. So it's like, even in the editing, you know that that's a scene and you know that there's a real honest moment between them. But see, in that case, like Chloe doesn't know what the grandmother's saying. And the scene's about, you know, the film is always about Chloe and it's always about how she's experiencing the world. And when she doesn't understand the language, it's like, you just need to make sure that it's felt. And I think you can definitely feel it, you know, and what's being said. And it's always helpful in a way, I think, as an observer, because you, you're looking more and you're listening more to the uh, authenticity of what somebody's saying than the words themselves. Was your entire crew then bilingual or were you relying on one or two people to, you know, essentially uh, put out your orders like I need a, a 40 by over here and I need a, you know, a, a 2K coming through this window? I mean, it, I could imagine that if you didn't have easy access, you know, over walkies to everyone understanding English, that can be a, that could be a real challenge. Can, can you talk at all about the process of working or did you guys come up with a plan? So this was all, you know, this is not no concern at all. This was all a piece of cake. We, we uh, did let's see. Go ahead. I was going to say, we didn't give him a 40 a buy or a 2K. So Eric, did, <laughs> Eric yeah. couldn't ask yeah. for anything. You have to worry about that. He didn't have any equipment to ask for. There's nothing to ask for. It's like, <laughs> you either got it or you yeah. don't, man. Like, look down at your... No, no, we did. We had our, our camera crew was bilingual. And it's mm. interesting because in, in Tokyo specifically, there are, there are certain camera folks who work almost solely on foreign productions. And, you know, they're bilingual mm. and they, they, you know, gravitate towards foreign productions or whether it's commercials or films or television. So we were lucky to get some great ACs. You know, we had a first and a second. The second was with us the whole time, Daisuke, and he was bilingual. And then uh, our ACs, we swapped out a few of them. You know, we only, they were only available for certain chunks, uh, but they were all bilingual. And then our gaffer, though, did not speak any uh, English. So it was interesting. Either when we were prepping, uh, I think Michi was like translating for me, like when we ever, when we ever had calls or had to go over things or even on the scouts. Um, so I had to work through a translator. And then on the set, though, Daisuke would help or uh, Asumi or the other ACs would help translate with the, or gaffer. Yeah, there's a couple times we had to set lighting for small scenes. But um, in general, that was our approach. It was like respecting the space, just augmenting what's natural and try to create a situation where we could not have to impose the machinery of filmmaking wasn't imposing on what's happening. You know, we were, yeah, we were such a small crew. <laughs> Communication was very simple. I, I guess I, I'll, I'll tell this one story. No matter, you know, we were on very long lenses and we'd be shooting like, you know, them walking down the block, like blocks away, you know, it'd be like, whatever, eight minute dialogue scene. So they would start very, very far away. And people would always be looking at our lens, like constantly. Yeah. They'd be like crossing the street and then like we would be behind like boxes or something. They just, you know, people would constantly spike the lens and we're not editing. So it has to, <laughs> within this single shot, we have to get the whole shot without like people like staring at the lens the whole time. So I think it was like the second weekend we discovered you know, there was something about like, I'm going to make a wild generalization, but it's like the, the Japanese aversion 
like conflict aversion, especially like direct social conflict. So we had our second AC, Daisuke, stand next to lens and just stare at everybody who was in our frame to try to get them to not look at our lens, right? And Daisuke is Japanese. And the first time he did it, he's like, Eric, this is so uncomfortable. Because <laughs> I'd be talking to him, I'd be like, Daisuke, the guy on the bike, he's coming, stare at him, stare at him, you know, get that guy, get that guy, get that guy. And Daisuke, for four weeks, Daisuke was next to our lens, like staring at every single person. And we realized the wider the shop, the more people we would need to like stare at the oncoming people to like make them avoid the lens. And so if you watch carefully, you see a lot of people like glance towards the camera and they glance away. And that's because Daisuke is like right next to the lens, like, yeah, hosing them down. But then Terminator he enjoyed style. it. Yeah. Yeah, I think he, he got he's, a little... He, yeah. start, he would be like, he'd be like ready to go. And, he, <laughs> yeah. and it's not just Japanese. We did it in Iceland. This works. This works. This is a, this is work a in sticking yeah. thing. It probably uh, yeah. in the U.S. I want to try it everywhere now. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You see Ho's film, Uncle, Uncle Ho. You see Ho Shen's films, or, or even like the first shot in, in Bernie, you know, Lee Chang Dong's movie. It's like, it's, the camera's moving. You know what I mean? Like there's a big camera. They're moving this camera and there's like, pedestrians walking around not looking at the camera i'm like you know like how do you, and they're masters you know i don't know i don't know how they i, I think that uh lee chang dong stages people and has real people in the background it's 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 very well planned out but on our on our budget of like just trying to capture something finding these ways to get people not to look is is it's like uh yeah it was exciting it's it's always like a rush when you finally get the takeoff and it's like nobody nobody actually like it just knew they were there. Yeah. That, that's a wonderful story. I, I really enjoyed that. And I had never heard of that technique before. I think you're really onto something. And I think now that a whole bunch of other people are going to start trying it. <laughs> start using yeah, it. yeah. So. I'm going to try it in New York. I haven't tried it yet. I'm curious if it'll work. Yeah, New, New York like, might, <laughs> yeah. might be different. You got to fly, fly Daisuke out, you know? You got to fly him <laughs> yeah, out. Just that <laughs> one guy. You should, make it, you should make it just to retell the story and be like, it's only him. He's the guy. He's the, he's the only guy who works. Yeah, he'll be yeah, like he'll superpower. be like live in large, and we'll be like borrowing. Hey man, can I borrow your Porsche next week? And he's like, I'm staring down everyone. Staring down. It's only you gotta have him on your set, man. <laughs> hey, uh, well, I know the movie just premiered, but do you already have some sort of uh, distribution sort of thing in line, or all worldwide rights available? What's the uh, outlook currently for the movie? What, what what's happening? You're, you could buy it. The worldwide rights worldwide rights are available. So yeah, set for grabs. All, right, all right. Well, you know, Sundance is a really famous uh, place to change all that. So uh, I wish you guys absolutely the best with this movie, and uh, I look forward to having you come back on the on the show at some point in the future. Thanks so much. It's been wonderful. Yeah, thanks for having us. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.